This is Father Gregory Pine. This is Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. Welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, here we are, Lent week three. Maybe as a way by which to get us started. I don't know if this gets us started on anything except for this thing. <laughs> but as a way by which to get us started talking, because we need a lot of help getting started talking, do you, have a, do you guys have go-to Lenten meals for Fridays? I suppose you just eat what's ever set before you at the, at the community table, but maybe before entering or while missioning, go-to Lenten meals. Father Patrick. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, what stands out in my mind is getting to go to the parish fish fry. So at St. Charles, I think it was the Athletic Boosters that sponsored it. But I liked that a lot because there was always... Was that all the, uh, all the athletic teams? All the athletic yeah, teams that, that, that you that were on? The, all the, <laughs> all the, all the sports that I did, yeah. yeah um, <laughs> let's just say that, that I was there more for the, for the community element, yeah. <laughs> but yes, I love the fish at the at the sports things. Yes. Um, for me, you know, a good steak and to substitute another penance is is really the route that I go. Um, no, I'm totally kidding. You can't of do th- you can't do that, listeners. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Not allowed in Lent. Um, or really, you shouldn't be ever. But such is life. Uh. I guess, yeah, I guess, I don't know, growing up, we kind of observed it, not terribly strict, so I think we, we usually had pizza on Friday, so that was kind of, was carried through through Lent, so it wasn't particularly penitential, but then in the order, just eating what's before, so fish, I don't know, fish is, fish can be a penance, depending where you're living, but it's not always, so, uh, yeah, there's not a particular kind of, well, I'll say this, here we go, now I'm thinking, when I was in Dartmouth, at Dartmouth, as the assistant chaplain, we were a much smaller community, we were about three regularly in the house. Um, so we cooked a lot more and I found this really good like haddock and horseradish sauce fish to make. And that was kind of my go-to for Lent while we were there. It was, it was not really penitential, but it was fish. So say la vie. Say <laughs> la vie indeed. My mom's go-to was potato latkes, which as far as I can tell are just potato pancakes. Uh, so it's like a thing that's already filling, but then you make it with a substance, which is more filling than that thing was originally made with. So uh, got the job done. The job being getting filled. Reg. Right. <laughs> let's uh, let's turn then to uh, to this liturgy and uh, to lead us in. Let's pray the collect for the mass in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, Author of every mercy and of all goodness, who in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving have shown us a remedy for sin, look graciously on this confession of our lowliness that we who are bowed down by our conscience may always be lifted up by your mercy. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, Father Jacob Bertrand, would you lead us into the first reading? A reading from the book of Exodus. Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Leading the flock across the desert, he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in fire, flaming out of a bush. As he looked on, he was surprised to see that the bush, though on fire, was not consumed. So Moses decided, I must go over to look at this remarkable sight and see why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw him coming over to look at it more closely, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. 
He answered, Here I am. God said, Come no nearer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, he continued, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But the Lord said, I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry of complaint against their slave drivers, so I know well what they are suffering. Therefore I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and lead them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses said to God, But when I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, if they ask me, What is your name? What am I to tell them? God replied, I am who am. Then he added, This is what you shall tell the Israelites. I am sent me to you. God spoke further to Moses, Thus shall you say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus am I to be remembered through all generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In reading this passage, which we have heard a variety of times in a variety of settings, we're struck by the power of the imagery, we're struck by the kind of nature of the communication. But one thing that that arrests my attention is the fact that it's so interpersonal. And, you know, sometimes people say like, oh, that's because it's working in metaphor, it's working in image, it's kind of rude language for rude people. But I think that this is just the pattern which we observe in all of God's dealings with us, that God, the word that we often use is condescends, or that God accommodates himself to our reception. So he draws Moses in by a fascinating and beautiful thing, which reflects he who is a fascinating and beautiful God. And he gives Moses a kind of handhold, as it were, in the Godhead. So he gives him a name with which to call upon him. And, you know, Moses asks for it directly because he's cognizant of the fact that he's going to go before these people and tell them wild things, and they're going to need some testimony better than his, who stammers and finds it difficult to speak. And so he gives them, he gives To the Israelites, he gives to Moses in their stead this great gift. And specifically, you know, in the season of Lent, as we work towards the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we think about the fact that our Lord gives us God in a yet more perfect or a yet more complete way in the incarnation and then in the mysteries that transpire at the end of this season. Namely, that he gives us his everything, right? He gives us his body and his blood. He gives us his very life breath so that we can have a handhold in the Godhead so that in the end we can, we can attain to it, so that we can enjoy it, so that we can spend all of eternity with that God who is Lord forever and ever. Amen. To build on that a little bit, I want to talk about how um, every day this interaction is. And I know that seems funny to say, right, because this is a theophany, to use the technical word, right? It's a revelation, a manifestation of God and his amazing power. Moses sees, as Exodus tells us, that the bush, though on fire, was not consumed, that there's something arresting and fantastic about what's going on here. And uh, and I, I don't wish to deny that, but that I do wish to point out that that event happens in the everyday situation of Moses going out to tend the flock. So he, he's, doing, he's doing his duty, his family duty, and it's there that he finds the Lord. So for everyone listening who's a father, who's a mother, who's a brother, who's a sister, who has duties and responsibilities in life to care for others, um, it's not that we have to go out of or away from those things in order to seek God. 
but God comes revealing himself, as Father Gregory said, in a deeply personal way, and as I wish to say, uh, in those things, in those, those parts of, of our everyday life. Yeah, I think both Father Gregory and Father Patrick, their reflections on this passage are um, that in that God is reveals personally and God reveals in the ordinary are important things to keep in mind, um, especially as we are in the season of Lent and looking to um, use this time of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving to to remove those obstacles that would prevent us from pursuing Christ in our lives. To we have to recognize how it is that God, the great revealer, great revelator, wants to reveal himself, and that's in a personal way and in the or through the ordinary workings of our daily life. And we should take great confidence and consolation in that. The other thing that's interesting here is is the way by which God wants to communicate to reveal himself to the Israelites, and that's through a mediator, through Moses. God speaks to Moses and then sends Moses. So however true it is that our Lord wants a personal and intimate relationship with us, he does so in, we could say, in a sort of mediated way, because he wants us to have an intimate and personal relationship with his body, with his bride, the church, who is our mediator, to receive his grace through the sacraments, to receive, particularly Lent, we think, I think we often think of going to confession, to receive his mercy in the sacrament of penance, um, to encounter the Lord in those ordinary, what might seem, you know, going to mass, going to confession, these might seem ordinary routine things, but that, you know, the personal encounter with our Lord um, through the church, through the priest, um, shouldn't be lost on us, that God wants us, God wants to reveal himself, God wants to do so in regular and ordinary ways, not because he can't do so in grand ways, but because he wants to be most accessible. And again, we ought to take confidence in that and encourage in that and, and not have fear um, to approach uh, the Lord, his mediator, the church, his bride, the church, and um, to, to pursue that relationship during Lent. Let's turn then to our second reading, which is a reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the desert. These things happened as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil things as they did. Do not grumble as some of them did, and suffer death by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, and they have been written down as a warning to us, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, whoever thinks he is standing secure should take care not to fall. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are two great symbolisms here that St. Paul points out to us about uh, Israel. Well, symbolisms that we can see. There's a very explicit one that St. Paul points out, and I'll, I'll leave that for perhaps Father Gregory or Father Jacob Bertrand to touch. Um, but but I, I want to talk instead about the cloud um, and the sea, because whenever we, whenever we hear those in the New Testament, we should be thinking about the cloud which is the the as the Old Testament says the the presence of God, uh, the the great sign of, of God uh, of God being among the people, and how the cloud is connected to the water, um, which is the water of baptism. So we we see in we see in both of these things that happen in the Old Testament the cloud which descended uh, upon the the tent and later 
the temple of Israel, the presence of God, and the sea, which symbolizes uh, what we come to understand as baptism in the New Testament. Okay, so we've got the cloud here, we've got the water. Why are they both important? Well, because for us, passing through the water leads to the cloud dwelling in you. That's what, that's what Christians think. So we so we we straighten out the order just a little bit, and we say that to pass through the sea means that I become the dwelling place of the cloud. I become the dwelling place of God. So just as the cloud was with Israel, just as God dwelt among Israel, first in the tent in the desert, and then in the temple in Jerusalem, so God dwells truly in my soul. And that this coming about of the presence of God is possible because of the passing through the waters of the Red Sea, which are a type, and the actual passing through the waters of Christians in our baptism. As Father Patrick was, um, I guess, speaking, explaining this reading a bit, reflecting on it, the the point that I made with respect to the first reading becomes all the more evident, this mediation through the sacramental reality of, of grace and mercy. Uh, and it's it's important here to recognize i think particularly the the sort of the the example that that saint paul uses um between those who those who fell and those who didn't we can of, often read these sort of like warning passages either in the gospel or the old testament the gospel the letters of saint paul as a sort of finger wagging that like it's saint paul is saying you better behave not like these other people or like or else type thing but really that's i mean that's that's a sort of juvenile way to to read what what is what is being revealed in the scriptures, um, what what Saint Paul is is talking about here, or what he's comparing and contrasting, is those who pursue a life of virtue and goodness, and those who don't. Um, and it's not as if those who pursue a life of of virtue somehow do so on their own accord, but that they do so by cooperating and working with the graces they've received. In their relationship with our Lord, in their relationship with the Church, and their and the grace that they receive, in the end, Saint Paul talks about. Uh, he says that though, he says whoever thinks he's standing secure should take care not to fall. Um, we shouldn't fall into um, ultimately here the sin of presumption, thinking that well, I've done this, this, and this all right, and you know I can presume on God's mercy and go to confession because ultimately that's that's not what our Lord is after in us. He's after a life of goodness, a life of flourishing, a life of wholeness, not a life of sort of just getting just getting by and doing just enough not to sort of be punished for for being bad. He wants our flourishing. He wants our happiness. He wants our wholeness. And, and we see this in the movements of Moses and the Israelites through the New Testament, through the letters of St. Paul, through the centuries of the church, um, that, that that's what our Lord is after. That's what he's revealing to us. I am struck by the way that St. Paul reads the Old Testament, and in the back of my mind I have this literary theory called Death of the Author, which, truth be told, I've never read directly about, I've just overheard people talking about it in conversation, so I'm just going to pretend like I know it with absolute certainty and uh, go from there, because that's what I do with a lot of things. Um, But the idea is that, you know, we're surrounded by a world of signs, a world of texts, a world of words, and authorial intent, like what the author who made the signs, who made the text, who made the words actually intended, just isn't that important because the real drama of human existence is interpretation. Okay, so that's, I don't know, kind of interesting as a literary theory goes, but I think it breaks down the closer you get to God because what we have here is an inspired text, a text which is inspired by God, which is testifying to the intention of another inspired text, which came before it, and 
this author is saying that that text spoke about Christ even before Christ came, like 700 years or 800 years before Christ came. Okay, what does this kind of prophetic time travel entail? Basically, God inspires the scriptures. He's the principal author of the scriptures. And he inspires these different authors of the different texts which are brought together in the sacred scriptures in order to testify to one thing, which is Christ, or who is Christ. And so we have a confidence that we, as we approach the sacred page, it will testify to the Christ whom we seek therein. And what is true of sacred scripture is true of the sacred tradition, is true in fact of sacred history and our place in it. So we don't live, you know, random lives of texts, words, signs, which have no real significance to themselves, which are just a kind of free-for-all, up for the interpretation of whomever. Rather, God is telling a story in us, and the story speaks of Christ. So when we look to interpret our lives, we look first for him. We look to recognize him with the confidence that he is there to be found because God has made him present. All right, with that, let's turn to the gospel. Father Patrick, if you would read it for us. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Some people told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. Jesus said to them in reply, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were greater sinners than all other Galileans? By no means. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did, or these 18 people who were killed when the tower at Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than everyone else who lived in Jerusalem? By no means. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. And he told them this parable. There was once a person who had a fig tree planted in his orchard, and when he came in search of fruit on it but found none, He said to the gardener, For three years now I have come in search of fruit on this fig tree, but I have found none. So cut it down. Why should it exhaust the soil? He said to him in reply, Sir, leave it for this year also, and I shall cultivate the ground around it and fertilize it. It may bear fruit in the future. If not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I think when we hear, or one of the, an off-putting thing about religion or about Christianity or even Catholicism in particular is that, uh, is sort of the, the negativi- negative kind of connotations around sin uh, or talking about sin or pointing out other people's sin, people, um, I don't know, people who are not in the church have, I think, have a harder time understanding, well, why we focus on failing and and the need for repentance and all of these these sort of things. And of course, classically, we are like, characteristically, we can think of like the old kind of Catholic guilt thing that we're always looking for, like the fault in how we behave or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, And and in this gospel, uh, we're told a number of times uh, about repentance, to repent. And I think repent has, we can think of, I think of... um, I don't know if he said this in the book, but I think it's Wise Blood, right, by Flannery O'Connor, uh, where you have this sort of preacher on the street who's who's yelling about repenting and, you know, just completely turns people off to hearing whatever truth might also be said. So repentance has a sort of negative connotation. Um, it's, it's a sort of, uh, yeah, off-putting, I guess. But 
we do have to we do have to heed the word of the Lord. We do have to listen here. And why is that, that? Why do we have to listen? Well, because we do need to repent because we have sinned, and we're not victims in that. You know, sin for it to be sin is something that we choose to do freely and, and knowingly. Um, and because we choose to act in ways contrary to goodness, contrary to God, contrary to what He has in store for us. Um, we, we, we bear that fault, and there's not really an, a way to negotiate around that. But in repentance, repentance uh, that our Lord calls from us or calls us to do is always coupled with his mercy. And his mercy only exists, is, is God's love that only exists in the face of sin, in the face of brokenness, in the face of, of fallenness. Um, we can't have God's mercy if there's no if there's no sin, because there's no need for God's mercy. So we see in this in the parable that Christ tells them that the the gardener um, encourages the the master, the landowner, to give the the fig tree more time to allow the fig tree yet another chance to produce fruit. So too with us that despite our sinfulness, when we repent and in turn beg for God's mercy, we are given a chance again, to begin where we left off with our Lord, to enter into that friendship, to enter into that union, to enter into that, um, into that relationship with Christ, so as to be saved and to live with him. Uh, and there's, so I guess the, the, the end here is that when we hear repentance, if, however repugnant or not it might be, it always has to be or always should be linked in our mind with, that, at the, with, with this idea and this reality of, of God's mercy um, accompanying our repentance. I think it's true that your suffering is as big as you are, or maybe to put it better, that your suffering fills your whole person. And a practical kind of application or a practical corollary of that is it becomes very, very difficult to compare sufferings. So we can, we can recognize objectively, okay, um, a Ukrainian refugee currently fleeing over the border to Moldova uh, has a worse life in a certain sense by comparison to us. But that thought doesn't bring us either consolation or fortification against our present struggles because we're still filled with the experience of whatever it is that we're dealing with in this present moment. And so comparison, it doesn't so much breed consolation as it does a kind of maybe contempt at best. And so um, it's really hard to say how much suffering we've been permitted, how much suffering we're able to bear you know, how well we're doing when it comes to shouldering that burden, unless you recognize that the person who's bearing it up is a saintly person and that genuinely inspires. And so I think it's beautiful that in the kind of suffering calculus that the Lord describes here, he says, okay, what do we know? We know that that suffering, that pain, that loss, that death is caused by sin. He says, what do we know beyond that from our human advantage? He says, very little, okay? So just because this person seems to suffer more and this person seems to suffer less doesn't mean that these guys over here sinned worse, and these guys over here sinned less. We know that there's an association, but we can't you know, make hard and fast judgments as to who merits what or who is getting their just desserts. That's not for us, really. Like, it's just not for us to know. What, what can we do, he says? Well, on the part of man, we can repent, right? We can, we can take a kind of responsibility for the part that we have played. And I think about that hymn that we sing in the Lenten season, Ah, Holy Jesus. Um, and the end of one of the verses, we say, it's my, my sins crucified thee. And that's not, again, like Father Jacob Bertram was saying, to just heap on gobs of 17th century French Catholic guilt. Not the point. Not the point at all. 
But the point is to take a kind of responsibility so that we can exercise a real agency in, in our lives, right? And, and on our filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ so that we can find in them a real meaning and so that we can find in them a real significance. And ultimately, the strength to do that, the grace to do that, comes from God. Again, like Father Jacob Bertrand highlighted, right, we see in God this kind of grand patience. God, God in, I mean, patience is, is one of the parts of the virtue of courage, which virtue inspires us to endure suffering. So in a certain sense, we don't want to say this in a strong sense, but more in a poetic sense, you know, God endures the suffering of the world so that he can make of it a kind of arena for his mercy, so that he can bestow upon, you know, us, his, his sons and daughters, great and manifest gifts, which would only ever appear in the context of the warp and woof of a very, very complex reality. So what do we know? We know that it's for us to repent and it's for God to be merciful. So there's a great scene in NBC's Seinfeld where George Costanza is on a walk with this uh, woman uh, whose attention he's seeking. And George totally blows it. Uh, any, any sort of chance to cultivate a relationship with this woman that he was going to have, George blows it by starting to talk about manure. Uh, so I would like to talk about manure. Uh, there's, a priest, there's a priest in Slovenia who does these little uh, shoots from his family farm. And so he stops on the tractor and he like, holds up his phone and, he, t- and he, talks about, uh, he talks about everything that's going on in the farm. And one of the things that he talks about is manure. And how the sufferings of the spiritual life uh, are not without um, are, are not without any are not without any meaning that we can allow them to do a work in us, and we see this actually at the end of the gospel if we are willing to see it. So stay with me, Father Jacob Burchin. Uh We see this in the end of the gospel if we're willing to see it when the Lord instructs us to cultivate the to cultivate the land around the tree. Well, when it's proposed, rather by the interlocutor, the interlocutor in the parable. And I think that this is the instruction for us, right? Where, where there's the suggestion, well, we could, we, could, we could cultivate the ground around the tree and we could fertilize it. We could make it more tender. We could make it more ready to receive God. We can make it do the things that, that we can, we can make the earth ready to do the things that the earth needs to do. We can make the tree more apt for growth. We can make the tree readier to bear fruit. And the sufferings that we bear in life are one of those things. They're, they're part of the manure. They're not exclusively there. I don't want to say that's why we suffer. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, I don't believe any of that. Uh, but, I, but I do think they can be one recipe, one recipe in the fertilizer. I think the virtues that we intentionally cultivate um, during Lent, especially uh, fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, those are, those are part of the fertilizer. I think, uh, I think any kind of generosity around those to whom we live, that's part of the fertilizer. Other religious disciplines, acts of service, that's part of the fertilizer. And so it, all, so it all just goes in and starts working on our soul and makes us more apt matter to receive God's grace and to bear fruit because of him. Well, listeners, we're, uh, we're certainly excited to have made it this far in Lent. It wasn't, it wasn't a surefire bet that we would survive to the third Sunday, but it seems that we have. So for your perseverance and ours, may God be praised. Let's go ahead and wrap up um, this Lexio with the blessing from the prayer after communion. Let us pray. Direct, O Lord, we pray, the hearts of your faithful, and in your kindness grant your servants this grace, that abiding in the love of you and their neighbor, they may fulfill the whole of your commands. 
Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So thanks again to all of our supporters. If you'd like to tithe to our work, please look us up at patreon.com slash godsplaining. Also, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. I suppose you could leave a four-star review, but we'd be offended because we're fragile millennials. So visit godsplaining.org to shop our merchandise and then get dates and information for upcoming Godsplaining events. The big things there are three retreats at the end of July and the beginning of August. And again, our prayers are for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Godsplaining.